This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Lead Like a Girl, the podcast that celebrates the power of resilience, determination, and female leadership. Join us as we dive into the inspiring journey of Jessica Smith, a true testament to the incredible strength that lies within every woman. In this podcast, Jessica fearlessly shares her story, experience, and invaluable insights on her path to becoming a remarkable leader. From being a teen mom and high school dropout, she defied the odds, displaying unwavering courage and a burning desire to create a better future for herself and her child. Through raw and authentic conversations, Jessica Smith unveils the challenges she faced and the pivotal moments that shaped her trajectory. Discover how she harnessed her resilience, confronted societal barriers, and propelled herself up the corporate ladder. Lead Like a Girl isn't just a podcast about one woman's triumph. It's a movement that empowers and inspires listeners to break free from their limitations, redefine success, and embrace their inner leadership potential. The first seasons will be Jessica sharing her life story, and each episode after that will dive into the strategies, mindsets, and practical tips that helped her overcome obstacles and transform her life. Join us on this transformative journey as we explore topics such as personal development, overcoming adversity, career growth, work-life balance, and so much more. Lead Like a Girl is your go-to resource for actionable guidance and real-life stories that prove leadership knows no bounds. Whether you're a seasoned professional, a budding entrepreneur, or simply looking for inspiration to lead with authenticity, this podcast offers a fresh perspective on what it means to be a leader. A leader who defies stereotypes, breaks barriers, and paves the way for others. Don't miss out on the chance to unlock your full potential and learn how to lead like a girl. Tune in to Jessica Smith's captivating podcast and let her story inspire you to embrace your own journey of leadership and make a lasting impact on the world. When I think about the beginning of my story, I first reflect on the environment I entered into. What was this place called home before I even arrived? I was born to John Frank Lane and Pauline Aviles. My dad was a drug dealer on the west side of Chicago. And my mom was the friend of his teenage twins from high school. She had run away from her home, moved in with them, fell in love with this powerful man that was over 20 years older than her. He had raised four children from his first wife who had passed away and had another son from his second wife who had fled from his abusive ways. I would be number three child from my mom at this point. My earliest memories are being home with my beautiful mother who kept a really clean house and cook the best Mexican food one day, and beans and neck bones and cornbread and greens the next. My mom always did the most and did it well. 
all while always looking like a million bucks. You would never know that she was cleaning and cooking and doing laundry all day. Her makeup was done. Her nails were flawless, nice clothes, high heels, beautiful gold chains, diamonds. Let's just say that she was well kept by John Lane. If I had to describe my dad today in terms of how he physically looked, I would say he was a very heavy set, light skinned black dude with a big afro and a big beard. People were a little put off when he would walk in the room. He had a very dominating personality. A lot of people in our neighborhood called him Mr. T because he had a lot of gold chains and he wore big diamond rings. And I always remember that when we walked into places, people always stopped and stared. They would look at my dad. They would look at my mom. And for a long time, I really didn't understand why. Why are they staring at us? I guess they were trying to figure out how a guy like him got with a girl like her. This was in the early 80s on the west side of Chicago in a majority black neighborhood. So I guess there wasn't a lot of families that looked like ours back then. From the outside looking in, you would never know that this beautiful, strong young woman with the clean house and the kids always well-dressed and hair-combed, you would never know that she was battling a drug and alcohol addiction that would eventually take over her life. When people ask, were you a daddy's girl or were you a mama's girl? I think I was a little bit of both. Basically, I was a spoiled brat, if I'm being real. At least for seven years or so before my younger sister was born, I would say that I was definitely daddy's baby girl. With, that just meant that I spent a lot of time witnessing what I call grown folks business. Some would call me nosy. I say I was a curious kid. I was always really observant. I always just watched everything around me. I'm sure it didn't help that I would hear my dad telling my older brothers, you need to pay attention. You need to pay more attention. Pay attention to your surroundings. Listen and watch everything. It could save your life one day. At four or five years old, I often heard those words in my head. And in one breath, it was scary when I would think about it. And the next, it just made me pay attention, play, pay close attention to everything around me. This resulted in me being very aware of what was going on around me. The drugs, the alcohol, the abuse, the dysfunction. Even though I was born into it, you would think it would be normal. But I knew that the Cosbys did not live like this. And there had to be a better way. Now, back in the day, 
there was a mega Baptist church in Indiana, and they had these school buses that drove every Sunday morning at 6 a.m. to the urban areas in Chicago to pick up kids for church. Now, most kids like us, you would have never been in church without Brother Dave driving that bus to Chicago every Sunday. That's just real. All the parents in the neighborhood, they made sure their kids were outside and ready for that bus because they were happy the kids would be gone all day on Sunday. The memories I have of that place, I hold so near and dear to my life. In my heart, I really have a special place for it because that place gave me hope. They taught me that Jesus died for our sins, that there was a place after this life where we could actually live happily ever after. Most importantly, they taught me how to pray, how to ask God for help when we needed it. And that would be the greatest gift anyone has ever given me in my life. And I take it everywhere I go. And the Lord knew I would certainly need it. What I call the next chapter, when I think about my life story, it would be when my dad decided that it was time for retirement. Not because he was approaching retirement age or anything like that. No, that, that wasn't it. But it was when my older sister and her husband, which by the way, were part of the, let's say, family business along with another older brother that I had, they got busted. After many years of being in the drug game, they got busted. They went to jail. My brother-in-law ended up taking the rap, and he spent years in prison. But that meant it was time to go. Meanwhile, the crack epidemic is in full force throughout the streets of Chicago. And my mom isn't so strong anymore. By this time, she's pregnant with my younger sister. And my dad knew it was time to go. He sold our home at 854 North Holman in Chicago. And we moved to the smallest dang town you could ever think about in Kentucky, a town called Eddyville, Kentucky. I know it even sounds small, right? This is a dry county where you had to drive about an hour just to get a case of beer. There's definitely not any drug dealers on the corner of Eddyville, Kentucky. This is exactly what Pauline would need to stay clean. My dad was born and raised in a small town in Alabama. So this was like home for him. He was cool. Plus, my uncle had moved there a few years back and had a home right down the road from us. He had a big boat, loved to go fishing on the weekends. So it was great. 
my dad had big plans for his retirement life in Kentucky. And I remember thinking, maybe there is a happily ever after before you get to heaven. I remember thinking when we had moved that this was just an opportunity to start all over again, to be in a different place where things didn't look the way they looked in our neighborhood and things that happened didn't happen in Eddyville, Kentucky. Maybe, just maybe, I was optimistic. This was the summer of the end of second grade for me. Moving to Eddyville would be the first time I had ever experienced racism. We had this big, beautiful home paid for in cash in the country, bird baths in the front yard, a pond with ducks in the backyard. And our first welcome to the neighborhood gift was one night someone sprayed all of our bird baths black. And on our sidewalk, they spray painted, go back where you came from. A couple months later, we would find our ducks dead in the backyard. All of our beautiful ducks that we love to watch in our pond were killed by other people in the neighborhood. At first, I thought, who, what kind of people live here? I didn't understand how someone could be so mean and so cruel to kill your ducks. I don't know what is up with Eddieville, Kentucky, but this is not what I was hoping for. We had a neighbor, one neighbor. There was one house next door to us. Everything else for miles was just woods. And I remember seeing her for the first time. She was a little old white woman. And she reminded me of Miss Helen, which was a little old white woman that lived on our street in Chicago. Except Miss Helen sold Coca-Cola's and sugar cookies out of her house. And she was so sweet, so kind. This neighbor was not. I remember when I saw her for the first time, I ran over and I spoke to her. And she looked at me with hatred is the only thing I can think now as I imagine her eyes looking at a second grader. And in this deep southern accent, said, the hell is property? And I would never forget that day. I thought she was going to run in the house and get a shotgun and kill me. And I just took off and ran. Welcome to Eddieville, Kentucky. When I got home, I remember going to my older brother's room. And he told me, you better stay away from her or she might shoot you. 
I'm like, for what? He said, she's not happy that we bought this house. I'm like, why? He told me, we live in the country now, and people here hate black people. And I I remember saying, but I'm Mexican too. He said, not here. You ain't. You are black, so you better get used to it. And he was right. I remember people always asking me, what are you? No one ever asked me that in Chicago. They would ask, what are you? And I felt, what do you mean, what am I? Once I understood, I would answer, my mom is Mexican, my dad is black. Then they would say, do you speak Mexican? No, you ain't Mexican. And this was pretty much my entire time in school, debating with third graders what I am, what I was. I think at some point, they convinced me I wasn't Mexican. When I told my dad what people would say, he said, the next time someone asks you what are you, you need to tell them that you are whatever they want you to be today. He told me whenever I had a box to check, if I was filling out Anything that had a box that asked what I was to make my own box and write the word other. Because there will never be a box for me. Because I was too special. I had no idea what he was talking about. Like I said, I was in third grade. But I never forgot it when it was time to check the box. I made my own box for many years. For the longest, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. Kids got paddled in school when they got in trouble. That was weird because we were from Chicago and they just didn't do that. That was something that you heard old people talk about like when they were kids. So in our house, when you got paddled in school, like my brother always did, you got paddled in school and then you got your butt whooped when you got home for getting paddled in school. So he really didn't like the setup in Eddyville, Kentucky. It just didn't make sense to us. I had this friend named Leslie. Her and her brother Jimmy lived a little ways down the road from us. And we would always make plans to come over after school. We would play her and her brother, my brother. We would, and it never happened. And finally, I asked her for a phone number and I called her and I said, are we going to play or what? And she finally told me, that her mom said that 
it was okay if we played, but her dad said she was not allowed to play with us or speak to us in school because we were black. Again, coming from Chicago, this all felt just really weird. People are mean here. People are cruel. And did I mention, I just thought everyone talked so funny. I couldn't understand anything they said. And then they would ask me to repeat myself. They said I spoke proper. This place really did seem like another world. Eventually, Pauline would be pregnant again with my little brother. She had found the one bootlegger in the whole dang town to buy alcohol from. And there was a drug dealer in Eddyville where she could buy crack from. I must have been so consumed in this crazy, racist place that I missed the details of how the heck she managed to do that. I must have not been paying attention. My mother also really hated Kentucky. She missed her family, and she was definitely a city girl. Now, with five children of her own and one stepson that my dad had from his previous marriage, that was what Pauline did during the day, took care of all the kids in this great big house and then drank all night. And whenever she had the opportunity to get high in between, my dad would travel back and forth to Chicago to collect rent and whatever else he did. And while he was away, my mom would do her thing. When he came back, he would find out that she had written thousands of dollars of bad checks, emptied bank accounts, ran up five, $600 phone bills. And eventually, things were out of control. I think he knew something had to give He couldn't control Pauline any longer. He wasn't providing the drugs. She found them herself. One of the memories that I have that I realized that my dad really didn't retire. He got out of the crack game, but my brothers and sisters and I were sitting in the living room one day watching TV. And we heard a loud sound. And the sound kept getting louder. And my brother joked and said, it sounds like a helicopter 
is landing in our front yard. And we all laughed. Within seconds, they busted through our door. That was a real helicopter in our front yard. Kids were screaming. My mom was crying. My dad was trying to find his gun before he realized it was the police at the door. Our house was being raided. The police asked us to all sit down against the wall while they completely tore our house to pieces. I remember my little sister politely asked them to clean up their mess before they left. And the sheriff laughed. He thought that was funny. She realized they had messed up Pauline's nice, clean house. What happened that night, how the house got cleaned up, I don't even remember. What I do remember is that they found that apparently we had acres of marijuana being grown on the other side of that pond. Now, I knew that my older brother sold weed in school. That was his thing. He had his whole walk-in closet like a mad scientist. It was aluminum foiled. It was purple lights. I really do think the kid was a mad scientist. But I had no idea that we had acres of marijuana being grown in our backyard. So after that, there were lawyers, there were court dates, and Pauline just decided it was too much. She had to get back to Chicago. So she left. She took me and my brothers and sisters, and we went back to Chicago. I remember arriving at a women's abuse shelter and my mom telling them that my dad was abusive. I don't remember all of the details of being there, even though I was old enough to remember. I remember being there and eating at the table with a bunch of kids. I remember sleeping in bunk beds. And that's the extent to the memory that I have. And to this day, my mother or my brothers or sisters, we've never really spoken about the time that we spent at that shelter for whatever reason. My mom would eventually get her own apartment in a suburb outside of Chicago. Even though I was glad to be out of Eddyville, I missed my dad. And now there's no one to come home and control Pauline 
after a weekend of binging and drinking and getting high. Now, it just never stops. At some point, the burden of Pauline's children would lie on my older sister. It was on her to take care of two toddlers, myself and my brother, who was out of control. The kid was bad. Now, at this point, I think I was still a pretty good kid. I wanted to be a teacher when I grew up. So a lot of times I would take all my dolls and I would just line them up and I would do a whole lesson plan and I would just spend hours teaching math and science and reading and just forget about the fact that my mom was smoking crack in her bathroom. I just blocked it out. I just escaped the madness and spent time with my classroom. I always felt thankful for being so young because I didn't have the responsibilities that my brothers and sisters did. I didn't get the beatings they got when she would get drunk. I didn't feel the pain when she would say the things or make them do the things that she needed them to do, to lie to my dad so she can get money. I was still mommy's little girl. But I think today I think back that I just felt as we got older that my brother and sister's burdens, I wish I could have taken some of them. I heard through many grown folks' conversations that in this time of separation, my dad was trying to convince my older sister to help him kidnap us, but she refused. He would eventually convince Pauline to come and bring us to Kentucky for the summer. I think for the most part, we were all happy that we were going to be back, not happy to be back in Kentucky, but to just be back together in our home where she could be somewhat controlled. 